Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. Today we will be beginning Book 7 of the Ascension edition of Confessions. This bonus episode is an introduction to the reflections that you'll hear for the next few days. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, here we are. Beginning <laughs> book seven. We're more than halfway through. That's kind of cool. If you're counting pages, or if you're, maybe it's not cool if you're like, I never want this to end. But in any case, we're more than halfway through. Um, I've asked that the, the beginnings of some of the books, our intros, Father Gregory, are you ready for book seven? I think I am, honestly. I um, went through a laborious process of preparing for book seven. It involved push-ups and sit-ups and extended rosary praying. So on account of the training, yes, I am. I'm prepared. Really? Gosh. <laughs> Put me to shame. I just read it, you know? <laughs> That's it. Okay, well, whether ready or not, uh, we're gonna we're gonna launch into book seven. So as has been our custom on these bonus intro episodes, we're gonna kind of give you, we are not gonna kind of give you, we're going to give you um a overview of what's to come to sort of set things up get our minds like kind of focused on what's coming, not dive into the particulars all too much. We'll do that as we cover the chapters, but give you this sort of bird's eye view of book seven. So starting from the bird's eye, Augustine, let's catch up with him. He is at this point in his confessions, 30 years old. So recounting the fourth decade of his life. And something that he does here in this book is that he begins to consider God that's not new, but in a sort of new way, because at this point he he's given up the Manichaean notion of dualism as a way to explain the world and understand God's work in it. So he's not starting from scratch, but he, he's looking at these questions that he's had about who God is, what God is, questions of creation and evil and free will. Um, he He's trying still to address them, but he's given up the sort of Manichaean go at it. So he does so uh, through his reading of what we're going to, we'll talk about this, maybe Father Gregory and his expertise can say a little more than I can. Uh, he begins to address these questions again by now looking at some Neoplatonic philosophy or, or using a sort of Neoplatonic worldview or understanding to answer these questions. So up to this point, we've remember that St. Augustine is a great lover of learning and reading and wisdom and these sort of things. So we've had his sort of recounting of reading 
reading Latin and Greek classics uh, that he did as a boy, his reading of Cicero, the Manichaean texts, the scriptures, and now we're kind of on to Neoplatonism. It's not that he's ignored or forgotten all of those, but it's just kind of where we're moving. So maybe to set the scene and kind of as an intro to some of the language uh, that we've had, but now more explicitly, Father Gregory, if you don't mind giving us the sort of spark note elevator pitch of like Neoplatonism, what we're getting ourselves into. Sure, yeah. I think most people are familiar with Socrates. Uh, so Socrates is one of these first great philosophers. You hear about a couple of people who philosophized before him, but he's the first great philosopher. He dies in 399 BC. Um, he's actually put to death by his, <laughs> by his city, which is tough. But one of his great students is Plato. And so you've probably heard Plato's name may be associated with some of his dialogues, which was the primary teaching tool that we have here now in the 21st century, probably the most famous of which is the Republic and the longest of which is the Republic. Um, but Plato founds a school and that school trains people in a certain mode of thought, a certain kind of thought, which we would call platonic thought nowadays. But there's a revival of it or a kind of renewal of it and taking of it in a new direction around about the third century with uh, one of his, you know, well, it's not direct student, but one of his kind of philosophical descendants uh, named Plotinus. And one of Plotinus's great students is Porphyry. And maybe you've heard these names, maybe you haven't. Regardless, it's not too terribly important. But the basic idea is that some of these notions set forward by Socrates and then systematized by Plato, bequeathed to subsequent generations of philosophers and kind of worked on through this school setting, become very influential uh, in the life of early Christians. So some of the first fathers of the church are very much influenced by this pattern of thought. So people like Origen you may have heard of, or St. Clement of Alexandria would be great examples from the third century. And by the time you get to St. Augustine in the fourth century, he'd be the best example thereof. So it's a certain way of thinking about reality and a certain way of kind of getting to the spiritual core of reality, which leaves behind a lot of the silly, materialistic, reductionistic notions that St. Augustine had entertained while a manichae. So I think that's maybe that's somewhat helpful. Maybe it's not. You tell me. Very helpful. Good job, Father Gregory. Uh, yeah, and you might be wondering, like, why is this important? What is this? Well, it's important because it's a sort of, it is the philosophical thought that informs or or moves St. Augustine's mind in in his theological thought, right? It kind of underpins his theological thought. It's the way by which St. Augustine sees and deals with the lens through which St. Augustine sees and deals with the created world. And then that moves him, you know, from the created world, as we've talked about, to the spiritual. And this isn't a unique move to adopt a philosophical framework before things theological. And as Father Gregory mentioned, Augustine takes up Neoplatonism, Plato's thought in this influences theological thought through the centuries of the church, but it's done again in different ways with St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, our, our brother Dominican, but rather than taking up Plato's view of the world, he does so with Aristotle. So there are different ways by which a theological reality can be underpinned or you know have its foundation. But for Augustine, it's with Plato. Um, so we'll get a sense of what this means and that sort of thing. So as I mentioned, at this point, 
St. Augustine's given up this, this sort of dualistic understanding of the world that the Manichaeans had presented or had proposed, and that there is a sort of physical, material, evil world, and then the spiritual world, that the immaterial, incorporeal world that's good. But this leaves him with, with some sort of what difficulty in then understanding who God is and, and what God is. So one of the questions that comes up yet again is this question of evil of the source of evil if there isn't a god who is material or creating evil things where does evil come from and and to make the problem more difficult you know if god is good and if there is evil or evil things or you know evil things done in the world well what happens here what what's going on where does it come from I guess that's the big question. What's the source of evil? So one of the things, the thing that St. Augustine recognizes here in book seven is that evil is the result of free choice, of free will on, on the part of human beings. So I don't know, have we really talked about free will and that? Not a ton. I mean, it's been in the background, but at this point in, in book seven, we haven't yet hit St. Augustine's conversion, but he's moving there and he's beginning to see, you know, he's recounted a ton of his sins and failings and weaknesses. And and now he's he's moving to the truth of the source of those sort of things. So yeah, maybe maybe say a few words from your perspective, Father Gregory, about the problem of evil, or the, the, the source of evil. And yeah, if there's anything to flesh out from what we're going to get a little bit more in depth in the coming chapters. Yeah, I think um, the idea of free will that you isolated there, that you identified there is super helpful because St. Augustine's going to remain interested in the question throughout the course of his career, I mean, throughout the course of his administration as bishop, but also his his career as a theologian. So there are quite a few treatises that he writes which touch on this theme, perhaps the most famous of which would be on grace and free will, on the predestination of the saints, um, on correction or rebuke. Um, You'll sometimes hear that one called there are a variety of treatises that touch on this, but he's really, I mean, what he's most interested in is how grace interacts with our free will, how an act can be both kind of given to us by God in a certain sense and yet remain wholly ours. So how is it that our kind of choice is not in competition with God's self-manifestation and bestowal of his interior life? That's a deep, deep mystery. Uh, but when we touch on the question of evil, we're kind of coming at it from the opposite perspective. Like, how can we make a choice in such a way as to exclude the presence of God in the life of grace and even potentially in the life of glory, which is a deep, deep mystery as well, but for for opposite reasons. So I think here uh, he's going to, again, like we heard in book two, he's going to describe around it or describe the conditions of it, but admit to himself and to the reader that it's not something that we can exhaust with our human comprehension. So uh, it's good to have a couple understandings in place with regard to free will, namely that uh, on account of the fact that we're made for what is infinitely true and what is infinitely good, we're never going to be satisfied with things which are limitedly true or limitedly good. You're not going to say after learning one truth, you know, created truth, oh, that's enough for me. You know, you're always going to have a desire for more. So too with created goods, you're never going to say, oh, I'll never eat again. That was a really good meal. No, you'll get hungry again in about five hours. Um, So that that keeps us open to all of reality in such a way that we're always looking for an ultimate explanation and an ultimate satisfaction. And as a result, it leaves us free with these limited things that that none of them is going to be so attractive or uh, be so impressive that it's going to kind of coerce us or that it's going to, you know, force us, as it were. Uh, to choose it. So part of our drama of human existence is that we train our freedom to prefer the genuinely higher goods to the lower goods, such that our interior life can be patterned off the kind of uh, 
yeah, hierarchy of reality and that we in turn become orderly the way that reality out ultimately to be orderly. So I think St. Augustine is going to kind of gesture in that direction. The thing that got me the most about what you just said was the bit about eating and then getting hungry five hours later, because usually my experience is like 35 minutes later, not five hours <laughs> later, but good for you. That's great. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was grace and the working of grace. And again, this is, I don't know if there was a, there's a subtitle to the confessions uh, or a sub subtitle to the confessions. It might be something to do with grace and the working of grace, something, something along those lines. I don't know. I'm not creative enough to come up with something, but it's the through theme of it all. What is what is that thing with music where you have this repeated theme? Is it like a lay motif or something like that? Lay motif. Yeah, that sounds like a thing. People say that. Yeah. Uh, through everything that St. Augustine writes in the, in the Confessions and, and, and a lot of his works. And here too in Book 7, St. Augustine takes up for the first time this idea of redemption and redemptive suffering and, and God working through the brokenness and suffering of our lives, which we've seen, and St. Augustine has testified to in hindsight, you know, the, the, as the course of his life has played out, that that even in his bad choices, even in his um, like wantonness and wanderings and, and lustfulness and vanity, there's, you know, he sees God's hand at work. If you remember back in book one, we even started with meditations or reflections on his infancy and how he sort of even saw at those moments, in hindsight, of course, uh, you know, God working. So this is a theme that's going to come to the to the fore in this in this book, in book seven, that uh, of uniting our suffering to Christ and and that in and through God's mercy, um, and it is only God who's able to bring about redemption through our sufferings and, you know, and he loves us even in our sufferings, hence the cross. Um, I think one, one thing that stands out that is probably, I don't know if it's an elephant in the room or not, but is, is the nature of conversion. St. Augustine also reflects on this here in book seven. And what I mean by the nature of conversion is, it's not what are like the steps or how grace moves. Yeah, those are all important. We're talking about those, but, but that conversion is, is a slow and progressive thing. You know, our Lord can sort of snap his fingers and, and work conversion in someone's life. And there are a number, many saints throughout the centuries that testify to this, you know, St. Paul is one who stands out. But often for us, conversion is slow. It's a daily process. It's a, you know, fight against temptations that plague us through the course of our lives. And we see this in Augustine. There's sort of a, a really relatable reality to Augustine's like, what, he's 30, he's still not converted. You know, we're in book seven still not converted. So there's, at least for my part, maybe I won't speak on behalf of everybody, but there's a a real relatability to Augustine here and a, a sort of comfort to recognize that even one of the greatest saints, you know, it's, it's slow progress at time, but progress nonetheless. So yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts, reflections, your own on that, Father Gregory, but I, this is, yeah, perhaps a, a good overarching theme to approach book seven with. Yeah, I think, um, one thing that I take from this chapter is this idea of kind of conceptual therapy. That's a notion that kind of gets enunciated in the 20th century, but I'm applying it back here in the fourth that, um, yeah, there's a kind of therapy to conversion, not in the sense that we lay down on a couch and we talk about our dreams with a psychotherapist, but in the sense that we have to kind of be healed from the inside out. And part of our healing is the healing of our ideas. Because if we think about God falsely or inadequately, then it's going to trip us up and it's going to post obstacles in the way of our ongoing conversion. And so part of what it means for us to convert is, yes, you know, like we're going to learn to, you know, try harder as we often are encouraged to do. 
and we're also going to fall in and come with like you know with other christians or fall in among those who are convicted as to these realities that'll be part of it too we might hear preaching we might be impressed by the testimony of those who have followed this particular path of life but also like our mind's going to have to change and i think often of the particular passage from romans 12 verses 1 and 2 but this encouragement to be transformed by the renewal of our minds or some of the first words you know with which saint john the baptist preaches and then our lord preaches in matthew 3 and 4 this idea of repent you know we've heard the word metanoia metanoia te. like we're going to have to go beyond present conceptuality and that will mean healing and growing and what you see here with saint augustine and now he's availing himself of platonic or neoplatonic philosophy is all part of the story of a kind of conceptual therapy so we talk about brainwashing as if it were a bad thing or that's the context in which we use it here in the 21st century but there is also an like a kind of necessity to have our, our brains washed not only from past traumas and past sins and vices but also from past falsities right from past reductions from past preconceptions from past silliness and that's that's part of what's going on right now in the life of saint augustine well there you have it i think that's a decent synopsis of, of what's to come um i give ourselves what maybe a b plus on that one good job Father Gregory. <laughs> you know c's get get degrees as they say so we're doing all right we're we're ahead of the curve so yeah i what what would i say you know take courage take heart take whatever you need we're going to get a little philosophical but we're going to walk through it together because there's a lot of a lot of beauty in what saint augustine is doing here and in, in trying to understand a little bit more who the lord is and as father gregory said this brainwashing or this this cleaning away of of the darkness of sin in our intellect, you know, to be open to the light of Christ, to have our minds illuminated with he who is. And yeah, it's an exciting moment in St. Augustine's life and for us to hopefully to take with us in our own journey of conversion and confirmation to Christ. So looking forward to getting into the chapters with you in the coming episodes. Uh, in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>